Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm Scott Kirk, and in partnership with the Columbus Dispatch Editorial Board, The Other Side is featuring a series of special podcast episodes called In Black and White. The series is devoted to discussing racism and its meaning. These episodes will run in conjunction with op-ed columns appearing in a newspaper and on Dispatch.com. Dr. Terrence Dean and I will be interviewing scholars in relevant fields to try to answer some of the most important questions related to racism. Dr. Dean serves on the Dispatch's editorial board and is a professor of Black Studies and Religion at Denison University. And joining us today is Dr. Kevin Magruder, who is the Vice President of Academic Affairs and Associate Professor of History at Antioch College. Dr. Magruder wrote an op-ed column for the Dispatch title, How to Be an Anti-Racist in Ohio. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I just want to welcome both of you. I want to welcome our guests, uh, Dr. Kevin Magruder, and I also want to welcome um, my co-host, uh, Dr. Terrence Dean. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. I want to thank you, know, Columbus Dispatch, for this opportunity. I'm, I'm very excited about this um, new initiative in Black and White to have our, one of our first guests, Professor Kevin Magruder. And I want to talk about your essay that you wrote in regard to be how Ohioans can be anti-racist. And one of the reasons we created this series is because we're very interested in how we can have this common discourse for layman's in layman's terms to help define these terms that are floating now, particularly in this in this very heated moment in our political climate, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, and the um, insidious murderous rates hot that are very high in Columbus, Ohio. So I want to know what what made you come up with that title. Um, how Ohioans can be anti-racist. And then we're going to talk about the five points that you give as ways that Ohioans can be anti-racist. So first, I want you to if you can define that title for us. How to be an anti-racist in Ohio. I was really inspired by the work of Eva Max Kendi, who has written two very important books over the last few years. One, Stamp from the Beginning, A Definitive History of Racist ideas in America. And then he followed that up with how to be an anti-racist. And so for me, both books, they create a clear vocabulary for understanding what racism is, what racist policies are, and how being neutral is not enough. 
to dismantle racism, that we really have to support anti-racist policies. And when we're doing that, we're being anti-racist. And the reason why I put the title as How to Be Anti-Racist in Ohio, in part is inspired by what I've experienced over the last several months here in Yellow Springs. So we're a village of 3,700 people, 20 miles from Dayton, very progressive, beginning in the spring, immediately after the killing of George Floyd in May, several young women, mainly women of color, uh, college age, began organizing weekly Black Lives Matter rallies in the middle of Yellow Springs every Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. And we got a wide range of people, not just people of color. Yellow Springs does have somewhat of an anti-racist ethos. And I think what they did is provided a venue, a teaching space as well. They asked me to speak several times. They asked other folks from around here to speak on different aspects. And so what that showed me is that a lot of times we think of these terms maybe as being things that happen on the East Coast or the West Coast. And what I grew up in, I'm from Toledo. So I think a lot of times we don't give ourselves credit in the Midwest for, you know, kind of being on the ground in terms of some of these things. Um, and so that's that's really where it came from. And then I know there are people who don't necessarily know what these terms mean, but want to know. And so that's what I am trying to do in this piece. And so what I believe Kendi does is break it down with examples in a way that can help us all. And what he does in How to Be an Anti-Racist is he explains how he shifted from being what he would have called an assimilationist, uh, which is someone who believes that people have to acquire attributes of the dominant society to to be seen as equal to being somebody who considers everybody equal regardless. Now, now, do you find that a lot of the African-American community finds themselves being assimilationists um, in an effort to appease the general public or just to be, you know, just feel as if they've, they've accomplished some type of access or success in America today or in the Midwest? I think it's almost the rare. <laughs> African-American who's trying to achieve, who doesn't have to do some assimilating along the way. And but what he describes is there's three categories that he talks about in terms of his work on anti-racist segregationists who are trying to separate the races. Assimilationists who are encouraging people of color basically to be like white people. Exactly. Anti-racists who are saying you are fine as you are and right. society needs to to come to where you are. And so what he was he uses his own example growing up of how he had to rethink his own assimilationist kind of mind, the, the ways that he had incorporated that and internalized it. And right. you know, I've done that as well. Um, and and so What being an anti-racist means is that all groups are equal. There's no group 
that there's anything wrong with because they're part of a group. But what he does is talk about policies that then are created that have a disparate impact on those groups. And and what he what he really breaks down is the fact that we tend to think that policies that we would call so if they have a disparate impact, let's say if we stay with the black white uh, mm-hmm. dichotomy, uh, if they have a disparate impact on black people, they're racist against black people. And in the past, we would have said, well, that was because the people, their racist ideas led to them creating that policy. And he challenges that to say that, well, maybe, but maybe not. Often it's because there's self-interest that's behind the policies and people use racist ideas to justify the policy afterward. And I think of in Ohio, Ohio gets started in 1803. Slavery was outlawed in the Northwest Territory where Ohio was carved out of. But from the beginning, Ohio requires black people to post a bond of $500. That's more than people made in a year. And so they were creating a policy that had a racist impact. Now, they might have argued that, and I believe it was because of self-interest. I believe they didn't want competition (laughs) from Black people coming in. And if you think about that time, when Ohio is the West and white settlers are moving into Ohio, they had an opportunity to carve out those opportunities for them to keep Black people out of it. And so then when they have the policy in place and they have to explain, well, why, they will say, well, because Black people are inferior, because Black people might be enslaved. So another part of what the Black people had to do in Ohio is show free papers. And so it sounds like, okay, logical, but all of those things fit into that self-interest. And then the justification is Black inferiority. And so there's the racist justification for a policy that really was grounded in self-interest. I'm glad you mentioned white privilege and white folks often acting in their own self-interest, which which is natural. Most most people do that. Most groups of people do that. But for those who have power, they're usually reluctant to share it. So how how do we convince white folks to be willing to give up some of their privilege and share some of that when it's in direct contradiction to their own self-interest? Sometimes it may seem in direct opposition, but not necessarily. Often what you find is, so if we look at the South in the 1800s during slave times, there were no public schools Mm -hmm. because the Southern slaveholders didn't want to pay taxes for them. And so poor white people were hurt just as much as black people. And then after slavery, in freedom, as schools are getting started, black people benefit and white people benefit. And so while white people might have thought it wasn't in their interest to support public schools, it was. Similarly, during the Depression, the New Deal programs, many of those programs benefited black and white people. White people often struggled (laughs) with giving black people the same kind of benefits that they received, but they, white people benefited from those programs. 
if we look at the Affordable Care Act now, white people are benefiting from those if numerically much more than black people. In some ways, the people who are against it are often working against their self, their economic self-interest right. because they're so identified with their what appears to be a racial hierarchy then. And so that's what anti-racist work to get people to see is that if the different racial groups are equal, a white person doesn't have to feel like they've got to have more to be fully human. <laughs> they can just be equal. Then. And so they can support any organization, any group of people getting benefits because they will all benefit. If we look at the coronavirus now, the fact that Black and Latino people do not have health care that meant that their chronic diseases were being weren't being dealt with. They're being hurt very much by that virus. But white people are, too. And so if we had been able to get people to see that everybody benefits when these services are available, then we wouldn't have over 250,000 people dead and most of them white. Right. So I think what you what you actually describing is the systemic racism that have occurred because how these systems are in place where people may not assume or may not believe that they have conscious or unconscious biases, right? Because they say, well, we well, we do want equality. If we put it into modern day terms, you know, looking at what's happening today, we say, well, well black people can go anywhere they want. Black people can live anywhere they want to live. I don't see how the system which you're talking about is, you know, set up to be structurally racist. I, this is for, you know, and I'm speaking hypothetically as white, you know, Ohioans and Columbus, you know, those in Columbus may say, you know, I don't see myself as a racist. I don't participate in anything racist. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I consider myself an ally. But I think what you're describing is that when you see the equality that's not being shaped in form in the system and how the how all white Ohioans can be complicit in helping to dismantle those other um, systems that are in place um, that disproportionately impact people of color. How, and then you lay out these five points. So if you can quickly, you know, you know I, w- I would love for you to just highlight just the five points that you, that you shared of how Ohioans can be anti-racist. Sure. Uh, so point one was change the ways that we think and talk about racial groups. And this is what I get when I talked about Kendi and his uh, in really unpacking the internalized racism that we all have, that we may all say, well, that's how those people are. Right. That's <laughs> and you can fill in the blank. That's a it's a racist. <laughs> it's enacting a racist thought. So we can audit that and say, no, that might be how that person is. But it doesn't represent all people when we when we broaden it to all people, then we are beginning to kind of move into supporting a racist belief. Then, right. um, two is acknowledging that racist acknowledge that racist policies exist. So when people see disparities because of policies and say, "Oh, that's just how it is," the <laughs> fact that black people with the same income and same credit don't get loan home loans at the same rate that white people do there's got to be an explanation and it's not just how it is it's 
racism and we need to explore where that's coming from. Is it the lending officers? There's something about the algorithms that they use. Are they looking at the neighborhoods where these people live? But we've got to acknowledge that if we don't, then what we're doing is supporting a racist policy. Three, focus on racist policies and not people. And this is where we often get hung up, you know, where people ask a public figure, do you consider so-and-so a racist? And people say, um, um, I don't know. And what Kendi is doing is giving us a, a way to sidestep that by saying, does that person support racist policies? And the reason why he does that is he's saying people can support racist policies in the morning and anti-racist policies in the afternoon. And the same people can do both. So let's not focus on kind of what they are as their core beliefs, but let's focus on their actions. So that person you mentioned who considers themselves an ally. So what makes you an ally is what you do. And are you, if you're not supporting anti-racist policies, then you probably are not an ally to people who believe in anti-racism work. Four, support racial equity in your local school system. Schools are really, kind of the foundations for a lot of our belief systems, uh, K through 12 education, higher education as well. How, if we can support ways in, at the K through 12 level to uh, equalize financing in, in public schools, that's the major um, barrier and we know it, but we don't seem to wanna do anything about it in Ohio. Um, there are, there's the uh, Fair School Funding Plan, Ohio, House Bill 305 and Senate Bill 376 that are under consideration that are examples of that. And across the country, there have been different debates about this and everybody kind of doesn't to find a way to fix it. But if we can't give our children equal education, then how can we expect them to thrive as equal citizens then? Right. And then the fifth is support fair housing initiatives. This is one of my areas of research is in terms of residential racial segregation. I think it's really one of the core elements of where racism and and segregation thrives is in housing, not just in the neighborhoods, but because the homes become the basis of wealth for black and white households. And because black neighborhoods are undervalued. And Andre Perry with the Brookings Institute has done some really good research lately to look at how appraisals, even for comparable buildings, are about 23% less in Black neighborhoods. And so there's something going on there that we need to really fix. So Dr. Magruder, in the past, the issue, the main issue with housing was redlining, where essentially Black people were excluded from certain areas of cities. But you're saying now that's not so much the issue. The issue now is actually in in property valuations and properties being undervalued. So Black folks can live where they want to live, but if they happen to live in a predominantly Black community, their their property um, and therefore their wealth is significantly less than their white counterparts who might live in another part of the city but have a similar house or or property or something of that nature? Actually, no. I don't believe Black people can live where they want to live. That may look like what it is, but 
there's a, a lot of unseen forces that steer black people to certain neighborhoods. And there's a fair amount of research that shows it. Real estate brokers do it. Buyers do it. You can discriminate in housing without you know, being under the radar. And if we look at neighborhood segregation now compared to 1968, mm-hmm. it's changed, but it's not that much. 1968 was when the Fair Housing Act came on board. And so the redlining that you mentioned, even though the redlining isn't happening, those patterns were set. And there's nothing that's happened to break those patterns up. And so that's, and, and they're being reinforced. So the undervaluation is linked to the redlining legacy. And part of that is linked to how lenders provide financing in those neighborhoods. So if you can't get financing to renovate your house or to buy a house in a black neighborhood in the same way that you can in a white neighborhood, then the neighborhood is not going to thrive in the same way. But what Gary's research is saying is even when you do live in a strong black neighborhood, it's going to be your property is going to be undervalued by appraisers. Right? Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad Scott asked that question because that, that, that is a phenomenal, you know, way of thinking how we think of, we, we, we're hoping that these type of discrimination or discriminatory practices within lending and housing um, have particularly, you know, have been done away with, but we can see that they still exist. As we wrap it up, Dr. Magruder, one thing we can consider, our country is very divisive in this moment, racially, politically, socially, economically, all of those um, isms that are happening. But Ohio, which have been, you know, traditionally a swing state, as they say, and, and this election voted notoriously red, where we see other states that were notoriously red flip to blue. So what do you think is happening then thus in Ohio and how can we heal to move forward in a racial discourse and, and using Kendae's um, um, text, if you may, for healing ways to move forward in, in a proper or, or, or discourse that challenges racism. I mean, Kendi doesn't use this language, but I think we have to move away from a, a zero-sum thinking in terms of success, um, that when one group thrives, that is not at the expense of another. And that's how often policies have been framed by some politicians. And so they pit groups against each other. So when you talk about white working class people, you would think there are no black factory workers or no you know, black people working in restaurants. or all. And if you talk about working class people and you have policies for them, they're going to help white, black, Latino people. And that's what we need to move past. Same thing with rural people. We did a Black Farmers Conference here at in Yellow Springs a, a few months ago. And when you talk about farmers, the image is white. There are a lot of black farmers. Who, <laughs> there are a lot of black people in rural areas. So people talk about rural America and they seem to think that all black people live in inner cities. I live in a rural community of 3,700 people and I have to go through cornfields when I get off the highway to get home. So think about who you're talking about. It's a broader America that, and when we think about that, then we can see that we have a lot in common that we can work together to succeed on rather than kind of thinking that if one of us gains, another is going to lose them. Yeah, this is great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Magruder. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. I have a quick question. Can black 
folks be racist. Yes. And I was convinced by Ibram X. Kendi because I so in the past, people would say that black people could not be racist because we didn't have the power to convey institutional racism. And there's some truth there. But so what Kendi does in uh, Stamp from the Beginning is he uses the biographies of five historical figures to show how where they are on this spectrum. And so there are situations where black people are supporting racist policies, and, um, often usually because it's in their self-interest. And so if you think about, there were some black people who were against Martin Luther King because they did not, they had power during segregation because they were able to mediate with the white segregationists. And so he was messing up a good thing for them. And so it may pain us to think about it, but they were supporting racist policies because it was in their self-interest. There are people now who support racist policies. I mean, if you, you know, I can give examples from the political arena, but there's just so many. But um, so we are not immune. And, and part of that is us acknowledging that we've internalized the racism right. that America was built on. And so it would almost you know, be a miracle if some of us didn't support racist policies sometimes. Look at issues around colorism that um, the way that that's racist, that's racism. And so there's a way that that is still an issue within black and Latino communities. And that's people of color supporting racist policies. Like how many darker skinned people do you see in different entertainment venues, things like that? It's or particularly in a positive light. Those are racist. Those are the legacy of racist policies, I would say. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad Scott asked that question. It's a great question. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Magruder. We really appreciate having you. Thank you for all your insight and, and sharing with us. I think an aspect of racism that, that doesn't often get talked about because you don't often hear the term anti-racist. So I think it's important for people to understand what that means mm-hmm. and how they can how can they can be a part of it, how they can participate in it. So I think it's really important. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Dr. Magruder. OK, take yes. care. And for everybody else out there, be sure to read the full column written by our guest. Uh, You can find it on Dispatch.com and in print. And be sure to check back regularly for the next installment in the In Black and White podcast series. And so until the next time, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.